Morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Glad you're here today. Would you like to stand up to the rest of the gathering? No. No, that was best participation we've ever had right there. Yeah, and you guys are leading. Hey, turn around the front row. You guys, they're leading from the back today. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Welcome to Lakeside. I think Josh already welcomed you, but I want to welcome you again. I'm, I'm glad you're here. And my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. And so thanks for being here with us. Uh, we're going to worship God together. We're going to look into scripture together today. And uh, that's going to be beautiful, I think. Before we do that, I want to, I want to introduce someone to you. When I, was a, when I was a child, my next door neighbors every summer would take me to this, this Bible camp they had for a week at their church. And I would hear stories. We'd play games, sing songs, do crafts, do all this fun stuff. But in the midst of that journey, every summer, I was getting this infusion of stuff about God. And I didn't know what it was all about. I didn't know what it all meant. But there was something that kept leading me over these summers uh, to come to the place where I trusted Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And obviously, that changed the trajectory of my life. So I want to introduce to you Jen Jarvis. She is our pastor of Kids Fest here at Lakeside. And she's leading Blitz for us. And I just, I thought you'd need to meet Jen and you need to hear from her a little bit about the passion that we have for this. Like, why are we wound up about it? Why does it matter so much? What's the big deal about Blitz? So Jen, give us a little picture of it. I would love to. We are so very excited for camp this year. I just love Blitz. I've been a part of it for five years now. And Blitz is just this high energy, fun, just joy-filled week that we are singing about Jesus. We're playing with kids. We're welcoming kids into our church, opening our doors to our community, and just sharing the love of Jesus with our kids. And really, it's a special week. Um, If you've been a volunteer or have had campers go, I know this morning watching all these campers come in. They're just so excited. They're smiling. They're like, Blitz is coming. And just having kids be so excited to come to church, it just is an amazing thing. And um, I know a lot of you know what Blitz is all about. And some of you out there are maybe new with us or don't have kids in um, that season. And um, I just want to share a little bit. I remember being that way. I remember having two little babies, and I was new to Lakeside, and I hadn't gotten plugged into children's ministry at all, and I'm just trying to kind of make it and figure out, you know, what I'm doing. And I remember asking the children's director one year, hey, can I, um, it was the day before Blitz Camp, and I said, hey, can I volunteer at camp tomorrow? And um, she smiled at me and said, no, you can't. Um, <laughs> and I had, I just had no idea. I was like, really? You know, churches always need volunteers. But we that process is a, a huge one. Volunteers had been, you know, been placed a month before, and they've all been live scanned, and they've all been trained, and they're all ready to go, and they all have an area that they're serving, and they know what they're doing, and they've connected with their area leader. There's just so many steps to our camp, and like Josh said, we have over a 1,000 campers. We have a total of over 1,800 people on campus this week for Blitz. It's an a.m. and a p.m. camp, and... Um, About, I would say, I don't know the ratio, but some of these kids are lakeside kids, and a lot of them are not. A lot of them are friends. You know, we have our families out there inviting people in, inviting new families. And so it's just such a cool way to share with our kids the love of Jesus and open our church and say, this is what we're all about. Um, You'll see when you leave today that our inflatables are going up on the rec field, which is a huge thing for the kids. They just love it. 
Um, kids start every day in the main auditorium. We have a skit. Um, that was written by one of our volunteers, Paul. He's sitting right over there, super talented guy. Um, and then they spend the day going out to art, going out to rec. We're singing songs about Jesus all week. And um, we have a big part of our week is, of course, Bible teaching. And this year we have Pastor Brad along with Ryan and um, Alicia and Josh. And they're teaming up and they're um, just exploring the Bible with kids and and, and can't teaching them what encounters with Jesus look like. We have stories from the New Testament. We're walking through those and just teaching kids what it looks like to believe in Jesus. Our memory verse is John 3.16. And just what does it look like to believe and put your trust in Jesus and then to follow him and how what Jesus wants for you in that. And so it's really exciting. We're, and I want to invite all of you. Um, just to be praying for our campers. Um, like Brad said, we don't know. You know, we plant seeds. That's what this camp is all about, just planting seeds and just sharing God's love and telling them these truths and singing about that. And, and we don't know what God does all the time, but we know that as somewhere along the line, some of these kids say, I'm in. I want, to, I want to follow Jesus. And that's what this is all about for us. It's why, you know, we do what we do here. And um, I want to invite you to pray for that and just be praying for our leadership team and for all of our volunteers. We pour it out a lot, and I, I just want you to pray that we you know, are filled up and, and have strength and health um, and energy to do that. Yeah. So. Awesome, Jen. Thank you. It's hard for me to imagine that someone could meet you and then say, no, you can't volunteer. Right? right? <laughs> yeah. But that just, it just describes the... It describes the process that we go through to make sure everyone's vetted and everyone's well cared for, well trained, all that goes with that. So, all right, so uh, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for all of our kids together. I want to invite you into this. So um, I know many of you are involved and some of you can't be, but you can be involved in prayer. And every now and then when we, like, we're going to send a, a team off to another place to do a mission week or something like that, we'll invite the whole church to pray for them. And sometimes we'll just ask you in a, in a, like an act of solidarity and, solidarity and commitment, like just to raise your hand and a sign of blessing to those that we're praying for. So if you're comfortable with that and you'd like to raise a hand toward Jen and all of her team today as we pray for them, that'd be a beautiful thing. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thanks for uh, Jen. Thank you for her team of leaders that she's uh, uh, gathered and then trained up and is ready to launch into our Blitz uh, camp tomorrow. I pray for all of these leaders, especially Jen, that you'll give them strength and health and the ability to uh, move through this next week with great freedom to be able to lead and to be able to serve you well. Lord, I pray for all the volunteers, hundreds of them, for 300 middle school kids who are volunteering as leaders in training. I pray for them that they would grow in this process and that they would be able to serve you well. And then, Lord, for a thousand children, they're going to come in and they're going to hear stories. They're going to learn this verse, John three sixteen, which to me is like the foundational verse in the Bible. And they're going to learn it this week. And they're going to learn, begin to learn uh, what it means that you love them so much. So I pray for dozens and dozens or maybe hundreds of children to actually put their faith in Jesus this week and decide, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, whatever that looks like for the rest of my life. Lord, would you, would you lead us? Uh, guard us, watch over all of us, and may the gospel be really clear, and may you be honored through our Blitz Camp this week. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Jen. God bless you and your team. All right, we're about to look into Scripture together this morning. If you have your Bible with you and you want to pull it out, you can. Uh, this would be a good time. You can turn to the book of Job if you want to. And uh, 
I'll tell you where in Job in just a little bit. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, but you've got your smartphone, you can use the YouVersion Bible app. We've got the scriptures there and some notes in there that might be helpful to you if you want to follow along with that. That's cool. Um, so uh, yesterday was my birthday. Yeah. I, I entered middle age. Oh, was that funny? <laughs> yeah, my son told me I was, I was still middle age when I reached 60. And I'm like, Bryce, I'm going to have to be 120 to make that true. It's like, I don't, I'm not sure that that's ever going to happen. Uh, but we had this, I had this birthday, and actually my wife had her birthday this week as well. Uh, she turned 60. She wouldn't, she wouldn't mind me telling you that. You know, you're like, you can't say your wife's age. And like, no, if, if she were here, she would stand up. She'd go, I'm 60. She would say it. <laughs> She's very proud of that. And uh, so... Uh, her birthday was Wednesday, and mine was yesterday, so you can see when, when we got married, I married an older woman. <laughs> and we were only 20 when we got married, and so, uh, like, barely 20, so our anniversary is next Sunday. So, yeah, I'd, I'd been 20 for a week when we got married, and I, I know some of your parents are like, no, 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 don't say this in front of my teenager, you know? It's like, uh, yeah, they, they, they looked at us, they said, it'll never last. Like, next week's our 40th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm very excited about all of this. And I told Donna when we, moved, when we moved into this year, I'm like, hey, this is our centennial year, 60 years of life, 40 years of marriage. It's actually a bicentennial because it's the same number for both of us. So 100 years of celebration is going on this, uh, this season for us. And it's just, it's fun. We've got some fun stuff planned this summer and into the fall and things like that. But it makes me kind of reflect when you, when you, when you reach a number like this, it's big. You know, it's like uh, at some way you become like senior, at some way you start qualifying for discounts, you know, things like that, which I'm, I'm down for. You know, if you know a discount place, I'm down for that. That's fine. Um, but I started remembering back to when I was 40. And when I was 40, I went to the doctor one time and the doctor was, she, you know, she did a physical and all the stuff that goes with that. And, uh, and she looked at my, my weight was climbing a little bit and... Uh, uh, my blood sugar wasn't all that fantastic and stuff. She, she goes, you're going to have to cut back some stuff. I'm like, like what? She was like, well, like, like dessert. I'm like, what do you mean dessert? She goes, well, like, do, you, do you have dessert, you know, at, at very much? I, I go, no, not very much. Well, like she goes, tell me. I, I go, well, I have a bowl of ice cream every, week, every night. <laughs> she goes, every night? I, I said, yeah, well, every night. She goes, every night? I said, everybody does. <laughs> she goes, you might want to cut that back to like every other night. I'm like, I don't, I don't know, man. She, like French fries and potato chips and everything that's good for you. <laughs> and I remember telling Don, I came home from the doctor, and I, I said, I'm 40 years old. I said, when I get to be 60, I'm going to eat everything I want. And not just on the day, like not just on my birthday, but like for the rest of my life. She goes, it'll be short. <laughs> I'm like, man, everybody's against me. I don't know. And then I remember thinking, and I don't know if I ever said this to anybody, but I remember thinking like, you know what? I'm 40. When, I, when I'm 60, I'm going to be able to say anything I want to anybody. <laughs> like, like, I mean, because you're old, right? You're old. You're like elderly and so you know you can say whatever you want everyone just think you know no filter in that dude it's all right now I'm 60 
yeah, neither one of those ideas sounds like a very good idea today. <laughs> I, thought, I thought when I reached 60 that I'd have a lot of stuff figured out. You know, I know I didn't have it all figured out when I was 40, but I thought when I got to 60, I'll, I'll have it kind of dialed in. I'll, I'll have it sort of figured out. I thought when I reached 60, I would be wise with my children most of the time. I thought when I reached 60 that I would get over all those awkward moments. No. I thought, I thought when I reached 60, maybe I'd be past most of the painful things that happened in relationships in my life. No. No, 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 no. None of those, none of those things are true. I thought I would have had it figured out. We're, we started a series last week here at Lakeside uh, called That's Not in the Bible. There are things that we talk about in our world where we go, uh, this, this is true, like this is how God works and this is how life works and this is true. And we start making these statements and after a while we say those statements long enough that we think they're in the Bible. Even though sometimes those very statements contradict the teachings of the Bible. And I think we'd have it figured out by now. It's like, no, that's not in the Bible. But sometimes we're newer in our Christian faith. Like, we don't have those things figured out. I wouldn't expect you to have those things figured out. But sometimes we've been following Jesus for a long, long time. And we still don't seem to have them figured out. And when we hold on to things that we think are biblical or we think they sound good, but they actually contradict the character of God, they distort the teachings of God, then it's like, well, we better get a handle on those things. So we're, we're going to talk about these kinds of things this month. So statements like this, like, God helps those who help themselves. What a, what a great sounding American Bible verse. Like, strap it up, let's go, come on, we can make this happen. It's not the Bible. Or uh, this one, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Which is beautiful, sound of music theology. But it's not in the Bible. The one we saw last week, I, God won't give me more than I can handle, which we said, you know what? Let's shift that one a little bit. Let's, uh, I'm 60 years old. My voice is still cracking. Look at that. It's like, <laughs> I still feel like a teenager. So uh, God won't give me more than I can handle. But we said, what if you just change the pronouns in that or change one pronoun in that and you make it say this, God won't give me more than he can handle. And as soon as you put him in charge of it, it changes everything. God will flat out give you more than you can handle. But he will not give you more than he can handle. Let's figure that out. Here's another one that we want, we want to talk about today. Maybe you've heard this from somebody, or maybe you've said this to somebody, and that's okay. Uh, it's this. Everything happens for a reason. You heard that one? Everything happens for a reason. And what's fascinating about that is it only lands on us when something terrible is going on. Nobody says that when it's all good. Nobody, nobody says that when life's beautiful and happy all the time. Or, you know, oh, you're happy. Well, everything happens for a reason. That's not how it goes. No, everything happens for a reason is what someone says to you when they don't know what to say to you because something bad's going on in your life. And it's not exactly in the Bible. Have you ever read the book of Job? If you read through the Bible, you've read the book of Job, and you get to Job, and it's like, oh, it's a hard book. 
It doesn't start as a hard book. It starts amazing. It starts out, Job is the picture of the American dream. Here's Job, and he's got everything. He's got, a, he's got a family, lots of kids. He's got property. He's got prosperity. He's got good health. Everybody wants to be like Job. Everybody. People would name their children Job just to be like him. Now, nobody names their child Job. Because after the first chapter, it gets kind of janky in the story, and the American dream crashes and burns for him. It's this interesting story where he's got everything going, everything in his life is up and to the right. And then this little conversation happens in heaven, and it's weird on so many levels. This little, ha- this little conversation happens in heaven between God and Satan. That in itself is weird. I mean, question number one, God, why'd you let him in? I mean, what's Satan doing in heaven anyway? And then, and then the conversation begins. God asks Satan, so Satan, what you been up to? I was like, that's not a question I ever think to ask. Maybe I should. Maybe it would help me out. I don't know. But it wasn't really helpful when God asked Satan because Satan said, I've been roaming around on the earth going to and fro. God says, what you been doing when you've been going to and fro? To, you know, to and fro? He just, I've just been checking things out. God said, this is the next weird part. God said, have you noticed my servant Job? I'm like, time out, hold on. I just want to make a deal with God. I just, God, you're Lord. You're, you're in charge. You can do whatever you want, but can we just have a little agreement that you will never bring my name up to Satan? <laughs> like, who needs it? I don't need God going, hey, have you seen my servant Brad? He's righteous in all that he does. And Satan goes, oh, right on. I don't need it. But that's what God does with Job. He just lays him out. It's like, have you seen my servant Job? And, and Satan goes, I have seen him. And he's got all this stuff. He's got the American dream. He's got everything that he wants in life. Except, God, you have, you have put a hedge all around him. I can't get to him. And then God does another weird thing. He goes, he goes I'll open the gate. Really, God? Why would you do such? Why would you do this? And then Satan goes in, and sure enough, he starts messing with Job's life, and he takes out his family, and he takes out his wealth, and eventually he takes out his health. He's got nothing left, and he's in pain and misery, sitting in dust and ashes. The way the book of Job is written, the way the story of Job is written, it's written like a screenplay. Or actually, it's more, more accurately, it's written, by, it's written like an ancient play. And it reminds me in a lot of ways of, of uh, The Wizard of Oz. Remember how The Wizard of Oz begins? Remember, remember what color The Wizard of Oz starts in? It's black and white. Why? Because it's in Kansas. I know some of you, you, you might have grown up in Kansas. I, how'd you do that black and white thing? It's so weird to me. So anyway, it's black and white and everything, you know, everything's going along. And then there's a, a tornado that comes in, picks up Dorothy's house and plops her down in the land of Oz and everything changes to living color. That's sort of how the story of the book of Job goes. And, but instead of being black and white to color, it's like two-dimensional and then it moves into three-dimensional. 
it starts off with Job's got everything together. It's all beautiful and everyone wants to be like Job and then it kind of crashes and burns. You're not really sure what's going on. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's sort of like a puppet show with, with two-dimensional puppets and they're going through all their stuff but you can't figure out what's going on. And then it transitions into this next thing which is a dialogue between Job and three of his friends. His friends come from a distance away and they've heard about Job and his suffering. They come in and go, Job, we just want to talk. And there's this painful dialogue that goes along in the, in the middle, uh, large portion of the story of Job. And these friends of Job keep talking to him and talking to him. He keeps responding back to them. And the gist of the message of the friends of Job is this. Job, everything happens for a reason. book of Job is what theologians and philosophers call a theodicy. A theodicy, a theodicy is a word that means an explanation for the existence of evil, an explanation for the existence of suffering, or an explanation for the existence of pain. Because really, like, why does God allow pain in this world? Why do we have to go through pain? Who wants it? Who needs it? Why does a loving God allow this kind of stuff? And because it's a problem... People write things about it or they talk about it and it's called a theodicy. So that's what the book of Job is. It's an explanation for suffering. And it asks tough questions and Job's friends ask tough, they ask tough questions. But the gist of their message is everything happens for a reason. In the middle section, during this three-dimensional conversation between Job and his friends, God's voice is not heard. But in the end of the story, God enters the conversation. And not in the way that he does with Satan in chapter 1 and 2, but, but he engages Job. In fact, I want you to see a little bit of God's statement to Job uh, as, he begins to, as God begins to reveal to Job some things about God himself. So if you have your Bible there, turn to Job chapter 38. And let me read for you a few verses out of Job chapter 38. As God begins to talk to Job, here's what happens. 38 verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, which is a statement about what Job was going through in his life. He spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And I, I got like one more request of God. God, um, don't talk to me like that. Like, I don't want to boss you around or anything. It's like, but wow, that's harsh. Like, God says, Joe, buckle up. I'm going to ask you some questions. We got some conversation to have and you shall answer me. It's like, okay, here it comes. Brace yourself like a man. Because here it comes. Verse four. <clears throat> Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. 
Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Hey, Job, where were you? When I launched the universe, where were you? Several chapters later, Job, who's sitting on the ground in dust and ashes, he looks at God and he says, I put a hand over my mouth. I have nothing to say. When you come face to face with the eternal God, you end up having nothing to say. When you come face to face with the sovereign God, Lord of the universe, King of kings, you have nothing to say. And then God turns to Job's friends. In Job chapter 42, verse 7, it says this, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, kind of the ringleader, he says, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me what is right. But all they said over and over and over was, everything happens for a reason. God said, you have not spoken of me what is right. Kate Bowler is a theologian at Duke University. When she was a young mom a few years ago, not many, uh, she just had her first child, and shortly after she was, uh, had given birth to her first child, she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, which comes with a death sentence, usually. She wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. I love how she begins the book. She starts with our one question. Why? Why? God, are you here? What does this suffering mean? At first, those questions had enormous weight and urgency. I could hear him. I could almost make out an answer. 
But then it was drowned out by what I've heard now a thousand times. Everything happens for a reason. Or God is writing a better story. Apparently, God is also busy going around closing doors and opening windows. He can't get enough of that. We don't stop to think about sometimes the phrases that we use and what their background might be. We don't, we don't stop to think about the strong connection between everything happens for a reason and paganism. Where there's, a, where there's a capricious, impersonal God pulling strings in our lives. Or fatalism, where you, where you just say, you know, what, what's going to happen is going to happen. Or Hinduism that has the idea of karma. It's like, you know, what, what goes around comes around. Fascinating to me whenever someone uses the phrase, everything happens for a reason. Isn't it fascinating that no one can ever tell you what the reason is? When... Kate Bowler was diagnosed with colon cancer. Her husband was at an event somewhere with his wife, and somebody came up to him, and they offered, they offered the phrase, you know, everything happens for a reason. And he said back, yeah, I'd like to hear it. Because it doesn't help us. Now, my goal this morning is not to shoot the messenger. If you've been the messenger of that phrase to somebody, if you, if, you, if, you, if you look back like, oh, yeah, I think I said that phrase. Or I think I've said it before when, you know, when so-and-so got sick or so-and-so lost a loved one. or you know, I, I think I said that. I am not here to shoot the messenger. I think every time someone says, you know, everything happens for a reason, I think largely that's being said because we just don't know what to say. We get into awkward spots where someone else is in pain and we're not in pain right now and we know they are and we're like, we want to be helpful and so we don't know what to say. And so sometimes it comes out, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, I guess. I'm not here to shoot the messenger. I think we say that out of a good heart. I'm not even sure if Job's friends were all those were bad people. I think they were trying to help. I think they came with a good heart. It just didn't land well. But there's got to be an alternative to that. There's got to be a better way to approach pain in our lives when it lands on others or especially when it lands on us. Faith, as we describe it, as we understand it from the scriptures, faith is always driven by relationship and it's always driven by a relationship in a good, loving, personal God. And that relationship moves us. And so then we come to the problem of pain and we're like, oh, I've got pain or I've got trouble or struggles or whatever that is. And then I would go, well, let's, let's start with this where God starts with it. When he comes to Job, when he, when he comes to Isaiah, we'll talk about that in a second. When he comes to Job, he, he starts with this. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is king of kings and lord of lords, and that's where God begins to talk to Job. Job, where were you? When I launched the universe, where were you? When I set the foundations for it, where were you? When I put the stars in place, where were you? You weren't here yet, but I was here. And in fact, I made it happen. 
It begins with the sovereignty of God. It begins with God being bigger than the universe. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing. If you have your Bible and you want to look at this, Isaiah chapter 40 is a beautiful poem about God's sovereignty. And he also sort of gives a conversation between God and Isaiah. And it begins like this in Isaiah 40 verse 6. Let me read this. It says, a voice says, that's the voice of God. A voice says, cry out. And I said, that's the prophet. And the prophet said, what shall I cry? God responds, all people are grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or the breadth, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not, an, is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? What if we... Let God be sovereign. What if we started with, God, you be God, and I won't try to be? What if we started with that? What if we actually bowed to God? I mean, actually, literally bowed to Him and made that the practice of our lives. What would change? One of the most interesting lies we tell ourselves today is that we are, we are sovereign. We are in charge. One of the symbols that we have in our culture that, that reminds us, that tells us, it calls out to us over and over and over that we are sovereign is this thing. You have one of these? So you, you have it in your pocket or your purse. You got it in your hand. Some of you are taking notes right now on it. Some of you are texting right now and we can't tell the difference. It's all right. This thing. If you have one of these things, this makes you more powerful than any king or ruler who lived before the 20th century. This thing, with this thing, you can send a million messages to followers with one click. You can change the market with one click. You can be in Beijing and Cape Town in Folsom, California at the same time. 
This is an omni machine. This gives you the omnis. This makes you omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And if it doesn't in reality give you those things, it tells you that it gives you those things. It makes you think that you have those things. It makes you want to have those things. It makes you want to have the power and knowledge and awareness of God. And I'm not saying you should throw away your phone. I have one in my pocket while I'm talking to you. But don't believe the lie that it wants to teach you that you are God, that I am, that you are, that I am sovereign. We're not. Where were we when God set the foundations of the universe? Where were we when God set the stars in place? Isaiah begins that little poem by saying, humans are fragile. All flesh is grass. Have you noticed the hillsides around us yet? Have you noticed the, the grass between, between our lot here at Lakeside and the college lot next door? Have you seen the grass? It's already golden brown. It's already dead. We haven't even reached the first day of summer yet. All flesh is grass. God merely blows on it and it withers. But all hope is not lost. It doesn't matter that we're grass. It's okay that we're just grass. It's okay that we're fragile because we have a sovereign God. We have a God who laid the foundations of the universe. We have a God who set the stars in place. We have a God who made us and who loves us and with whom by faith we can have a relationship. We have that kind of God. Isaiah begins that poem by talking about the fragility of humanity and he ends that poem with a statement of hope. He says, those who hope in the Lord will gain new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. How is that possible? It's because they hope in the living God. Faith is always driven by a relationship. Faith is not about certainty. Faith is not about having ultimate power. Faith is a commitment to a person named God. And why do we have pain? I don't know. I don't know every answer. And you know, that comes with, human, that comes with being human. It's okay not to have every answer. I mean, that's, that's the weird part for us. We get into a spot where somebody that we love is in pain and we go, I want to I solve it for you and I want to fix it for you and I want to give you the answer. And so we try and give them an answer. We end up with, we end up with this. Uh, everything happens for a reason. You know, as a human being, it's possible to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I do know this. I trust my sovereign God. That's my declaration of faith. 
I trust my sovereign God. And I can't land that on you. I can't make you trust my sovereign God. You can only trust your own God. You can only trust God for yourself. But I can let you know, I trust my sovereign God. And my pain might not be like yours, and my suffering might not be like yours. And our experiences will be different in our lives. But I trust my sovereign God. Because when I acknowledge that I trust God, I acknowledge that he lives, and I acknowledge that I'm not him, and I acknowledge that he's in charge, and I acknowledge that the world is not out of control. And I acknowledge that my God is good, and that's my declaration of faith. And that changes everything for me. Jesus, I pray for us today. I know we need you. I believe we need you. I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you love us. I'm grateful for the remarkable life you pour out on us. And Lord, I also acknowledge that that life that you give to us sometimes comes with major, major challenges. And so today for me and my friends here, Lord, I pray that you would help us to build that faith statement into our lives. I trust my sovereign God. And when trouble comes in our lives, in my life, may we say it. May we remind ourselves of it, that we have a relationship with you based on faith and we trust our sovereign God. We don't know why you do everything you do and we don't know why you let everything happen as you let it happen, but you are good and you are powerful and you're worthy of our trust. And we give that to you today. Lord, thank you. We love you. Amen.